Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with P.W. Singer, strategist and senior fellow at the New America Foundation and also a contributing editor at Popular Science. He has written a bunch of books, and the most recent book is called Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media which explores how social media has changed war, politics, and business. I really enjoyed this book, and I think it's essential reading for anyone interested in how social media has become such an important thing in a variety of settings and domains. So we talked about a bunch of things, including cybersecurity. He has written a few books on the topic. And in fact, he will be giving a keynote in late March at Strata Data in San Francisco. And we have a lot of great keynote speakers, including uh, Shafi Goldwasser, who won a Turing Prize, which is like the Nobel Prize in Computer Science, as well as David Sanger, who is New York Times correspondent. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. P.W. Singer, strategist, senior fellow at the New America Foundation, contributing editor at Popular Science, and author of many books, including one that I just finished, I really enjoy and highly recommend called Like War. Welcome to The Data Show. Thanks for having me on. So first off, by way of background, you've written a lot of interesting books. You've worked as an analyst and strategist. So as an introduction to our listeners, so how do you end up at the intersection of defense and technology strategy? Oh, wow. Um, how far back do we go? Uh, you know, growing up um, with my Star Wars bedsheets <laughs> or uh, academic side. Or no, uh, how, I, how do you how do you end up in this space? So I've um, always been interested in the questions of uh, what happens when science, technology, policy, and politics come crashing together. You know, I made the joke about Star Wars, but you know, you know I was a little kid in that space, but then uh, went on to get a graduate degree and political science, then joined. Um, I w- worked for a very brief time in organizations like the Pentagon, then up at Harvard at the Belfer Center, uh, which looks at science and rational affairs, then moved into what's known as the think tank world. Uh, think tanks, think of them as akin to universities, but with no students, and they focus on the world of public policy. And uh, so that's where I've spent much of my career, but also done a variety of consulting for technology companies, for the U.S. military, for the intelligence community, et cetera. And that's been the type of work and writing that I do has been particularly focused on um, what's changing in technology today 
And then what are the new questions coming out from those changes that we have to figure out? So that's the thread that connects everything from a past book that I did called Wired for War that was uh, one of the first books to look at the growing use of robotics in warfare uh, and also in the rest of our lives. So the science fiction becoming real. Uh, then a book called Cybersecurity and Cyber War, What Everyone Needs to Know. The title's uh, pretty self-evident of what it's about. Then um, to a book called Ghost Fleet, which was a novel about the future of war, but it had a nonfiction edge to it. And then it was a, a novel, but it came with over 400 footnotes. And then most recently, what you and I are chatting about, a project called Like War, which is about how social media changed you know, everything from our social lives, but also the cybersecurity space, the political space, the world of war, the world of politics. And then in turn, how each of these spaces, you know, whether it's politics or war, has changed social media for the rest of us. So before we jump into Like War, actually, you uh, gave me a, a great way to segue to the, one of your earlier books, which is called Wired for War, which came out in 2009. And as you mentioned, was kind of one of the first books on, on, on the topic of applications for robotics in, in, in many areas. But so looking back now, so now it's 10 years ago that you published this book. So what aspects of the book played out according to your expectations and uh, which ones are surprised you in many ways? <laughs> um, all of it played out according to expectations. Um, <laughs> nothing would need to be changed uh, if we reissued it now. I imagine that the, the level of autonomy of those systems was much less than they are now. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, you know, if I was doing uh, a version of it today, if we were doing an update, a couple of things that uh, have happened so uh, maybe, you know, for your listeners who, who aren't familiar with the book, essentially the book was a tour around the world of robotics from what was it like to operate a, a early robotic system out in the field in Iraq to what is it like for the drone pilots that were flying them back in Nevada, but the plane is over Afghanistan to pulling back. What did the scientists and designers, what were their perspectives to uh, the science fiction authors that inspired them to uh, interviews on the other side? What was it like uh, to be on the ground uh, in the Middle East? And what did you think about the drone flying overhead? And then that was you know, sort of the, the, the variety of perspectives. And then it used that as a way to explore not just what was going on with robotics, but how this was part of a larger change in the story of war itself and the kind of questions that were coming out of it. Now, since then, I would say a couple of things that the book touched on, but you know, really took off. It pointed to, obviously, the, the technology was always advancing. So where the technology was um, during the research period, it was mostly remote operated at the time. We're obviously now seeing more and more autonomy. We're not in the world of Skynet or the Terminator, but we're seeing more autonomous systems. The second is um, it explored as a primarily uh, in terms of the, the people using it. It was looking more at the, the U.S. side. Obviously, since then, this technology is, is globally proliferated. For example, one of the key changes in the, in the marketplace of robotics has been, um, and like in so many other marketplaces over the last 10 years, has been the entry of China from relatively small-scale operation then to kind of mimicry, copycatting, 
to now not just a large-scale user, but arguably the leading exporter uh, in the marketplace of robotics, both civilian, and we're talking about unmanned aerial systems, drones, both civilian and military side. China is arguably the leader in that space. On the political side, one of the, um, it looked at both the kind of official battlefield use of these technologies, but at the time it talked about, but um, the scale was not the same of the, you know, I jokingly call them the not so covert operations. So you have the use by military in you know, Afghanistan or Iraq, but you also had the use by the CIA into places like Pakistan, et cetera. And the scale of that definitely boomed between when the book came out and today, and I was part of the variety of you know debates and policy discussions around that. So those are some of the issues uh, that uh, have happened in that space since. Obviously, one of the other uh, issues is the greater priority of cybersecurity uh, when you think about not just the boom in robotics, again, both on the civilian and the military world, but also that means people targeting them the counters to them. And one of the ways is the mix of cyber and electronic warfare. And so, you know, that's another area is as we use more and more robotics, which is, you know, part of a larger story of the rise of the Internet of Things, we're um, gaining all these incredible new capabilities, both in business and the military, but we're also massively growing the attack surface for uh, bad guys to go after. Yeah, and I, I think also one of the things that has changed is maybe there's a lot more everyday applications or so-called civilian applications, and also the, the rise of new uh, methods and technologies on the AI side, particularly deep learning, which means that a lot of people in my world, right, Silicon Valley, have been kind of uh, forced to think about some of these applications. So. I don't know to what extent, Peter, uh, people were talking about uh, ethics at that point in time. But now, I, I think over the last year, I, we've heard of employees at Google, Microsoft, and Amazon, to some extent, uh, kind of uh, protesting these applications. Oh, totally. And, and, you know, the book, one of the issues the book presented was that, like any other game-changing technology, you know, whether it was the steam engine the telegraph, the computer, robotics was going to bring in a whole new series of questions that were about not just what is possible now that wasn't possible before. And again, you can think about this both in um, what's possible in the military world, what's possible in the civilian economy, but they were also going to introduce new questions of what is proper, these, these issues of right and wrong, these issues of law and ethics that in many ways had been science fiction just a generation earlier. And, uh, you know, explored some of that and, and looked at both, you know, you, you have to look at both the questions of law, but also uh, morality and ethics. There's not a perfect overlap between the two. And uh, you hit it exactly. We're seeing these move from kind of imaginary conversations to very real questions at organizations that range from the Pentagon to, you know, inside of Google. You put your finger on um, something else that, again, I think there's a, this touches not just in terms of robotics, but broader issues of cybersecurity, broader issues of uh, social media platforms, et cetera, is that you have everything from uneasy relationship between the military and technology companies. You have this strange irony. We actually explored this a little bit in, in Ghost Fleet that 
Silicon Valley doesn't want to admit it to itself, but if you look at the actual history, it started out because oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's department programming. Actually, even before you get back to ARPANET, it's earlier. It goes back to a Navy base at Moffett Field. You can, you can, uh, it was originally for blimps. You can see it as you fly uh, into SFO. But so you have this origin, but now you have this kind of tension at play between Silicon Valley and the Defense Department. There are both issues of kind of morality and ethics and technology creators and engineers saying, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with war. And, you know, the example of Project Maven, that was very predictable that there was going to be controversy. You know, if the the first time the Pentagon and Google were going to dip their toe in the water to choose to do so on drone footage, I mean, that was pretty predictable uh, that it was going to be controversial. I actually remember having a conversation at the time with one of the reporters who broke the story. Uh, If you'll recall, it was a front page newspaper story. And I said to him, you know, would you have covered this story if it had been about Google and the military working on how to apply AI to reforming the Pentagon personnel assignment system? And he was like, no, of course not. But the fact that it was drones, that made it, you know, drones in and of themselves are controversial. You cross that with AI and boom, you've got something that, you know, is a hot button issue. So you've got that, but you also have other things that are going on besides the uneasy relationship between the Pentagon and Silicon Valley um, and questions of law and ethics. You also have the questions that Silicon Valley is trying to navigate of um, its relationship with China and how you have a marketplace there that is crucial to the future of many of these companies in terms of you know their future value, their perceived share prices, but also, oh, by the way, it's an authoritarian regime. In addition, it's an authoritarian regime that is increasingly in a geopolitical technology and military arms race with the United States where these companies are hubbed out of. And so you see these companies trying to, you know, Google's a great illustration of this, where on one hand, it had the controversy of, are you going to work with a military or not? And then the U.S. military or not. And on the other hand, it had the controversy of, oh, are you going to help uh, censor search engines in China or not? And this really goes back to these, these questions that the companies are wrestling with that are highly charged, highly political. It's something, you know, to move it from the kind of the the hardware or cybersecurity side. It's similarly the the social media aspect of this that we look at in, in like war. You know, think about the story of Facebook almost exactly 15 years ago to when you and I are talking, the Facebook.com is created. And now 15 years later, the creator, Mark Zuckerberg, is arguably one of the most powerful figures, not just in Silicon Valley, but in all of war and politics. That is, he's personally making decisions on what to do about everything from Russian disinformation attacks to genocide in Myanmar. And his decision tilts that playing field one way or another. And it's not just, again, a playing field. It's literally a battlefield on this network that he created. Really, you know, you go back to the history of um, the Facebook.com. It was a space for college kids to rate who was hot or not. And now it's helping to determine the outcome of everything from national elections, the outcomes of battles themselves. You think about the Battle of Mosul in Iraq to uh, the rise and fall of terrorist groups, as I mentioned, genocides. It's an incredible power. And so you see these everything from the companies themselves to their creators to 
the individual engineers in them all wrestling with what is this new kind of responsibility I have that in many ways I didn't ask for, but got it. We'll jump into Likewar uh, shortly here. But as you were talking, it struck me that one of the things that probably uh, is behind this uh, conversation that uh, we're having is, I don't know, would you expect the same kind of uh, press coverage if it were the Pentagon in uh, relation to a traditional defense contractor? Maybe not, right? So it's it's maybe because some of the Silicon Valley companies have kind of signaled that their values are different. Well, let's be clear here. There's no one Silicon Valley, you know, set position. So if you think about the individual companies, while, you know, obviously Google has had this kind of internal conflict between workforce and leadership plans spill out in the public, you know, by contrast, uh, Amazon's you know, effectively becoming, it has an aim to become one of, not the leading government contractor. And even in also Oracle, right? We could go through each of the companies and they all have obviously in some ways similar, but in some ways very different corporate cultures. And that reflects often their founders and their founders' vision. So, so you have that. But then you, again, you also have, you know, you asked in terms of defense contractors, many of them don't have this kind of conflict because they are in that position of they, they clearly identify the marketplace they want to be in. They recruit people who kind of already know what they're getting into. Exactly. You've got that. They also, um, for the most part, most of them don't try and play in both worlds. So, the, and, and this is what's very different now about um, the competition with the China versus, uh, say, during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So back in the Cold War, you wouldn't have had a um, IBM, for example, say to the Pentagon, you know, I know you're reaching out to me about this contract, but I'd rather not work with you because the Moscow market is just so valuable to my future share price. Either I'm doing so much business in my franchise in Moscow, or I really want to open up the Moscow market. The Soviet Union was not a marketplace in terms of the way these companies look at China, which of course is you know not just merely a leading marketplace, it's often the marketplace for their potential future. So, you know, you again, it just creates a very different story for technology companies and their relationship to government than, say, you had back during the Cold War. Right. You can see this working in reverse the way, for example, um, and again, this connects to some of the themes out there in cybersecurity today, the controversies over 5G and Chinese companies like uh, ZTE or uh, Huawei or, or whatever, is that in turn, you didn't have uh, Soviet companies reaching out into the United States or the members of NATO and saying, yes, we'd be happy to run much of your infrastructure for you. And we're going to offer you cheaper prices to do that the way, uh, you know, whether it's a cell phone company or a 5G company now does. But of course, you know, you can't look at these companies without also remembering they're coming out of an authoritarian state that is in a obviously tense relationship competition that's, again, geopolitical, technologic, has military aspects to it. So it's just different. And we need to kind of understand these differences. So let's pivot to your new book, uh, Like War, which explores how social media has changed war and politics. So one of the things you bring up is that the internet has become a battlefield. And actually, uh, I think you've already cited some examples of why that is. But one of one of the things that you actually 
discuss in the book, which I think I've read, but I never kind of put it together until you and your co-author nailed it in the book, which is uh, uh, what's happening in Chicago as far as uh, violence and how a lot of that begins online. The basic idea of the book is we spent about five years tracking how social media was being used all around the world in different, you might think of them as topic spaces. So looking at everything from how was it being used by militaries, by terrorist groups, by corporations, by politicians, by celebrities, by teenagers, you name it. And uh, the essential idea of like war, the, the findings of this project, is sort of a twofold play on words. So the first is, if you think of cyber war as the hacking of networks, like war is its, its twin. It's the hacking of people on the networks by driving ideas viral through a mix of likes and lies. And so as you noted, uh, what it's done has uh, turned social media that began as a space for fun, for entertainment, it then became a communication space, it became a marketplace. It's also turned it into a kind of battle space. It, it's simultaneously all of these things at once. And you know, you can see that where, for example, uh, you have Russian information warriors that are using digital marketing techniques and teenage jokes to influence the outcome of elections. Or you have a different example would be ISIS's top recruiter is using, he's mimicking, as a, as a guy named Janet Hussein, he's uh, mimicking how Taylor Swift built her fan army. Or you have an example of, I guess, uh, one of Putin's uh, lieutenants uh, admiring Kim Kardashian. Yes. And, and uh, you know, and, and all of it seems, you know, strange and unbelievable. But of course, you know, there's so much now that would have been strange and unbelievable if we, if we you know, went back 20 years. I mean, I was, I was joking with um, someone recently, you know, imagine, you know, I'm a kid of the 1980s. And imagine if you had told me in the 1980s, Bill Cosby is going to be in prison and Donald Trump's going to be president. Yeah, <laughs> that's what happened, right? So, but you know, the second finding of the project was that when you look across all these wildly diverse actors, diverse groups, diverse organizations, what was interesting is that they turned out to be using the very similar tactics, very similar approaches. To put it a different way, it's a, a mode of conflict. There's there's ways of winning it that all the different groups are realizing it. Um, and more importantly, the groups that understand these new rules of the game are the ones who are winning their online wars and having real effect, whether that real effect is winning your political campaign, winning your corporate marketing campaign, winning your uh, campaign to become a celebrity, to become the most popular kid in your school, to do the opposite, to sabotage someone else's campaign to become a leading political candidate, the popular kid at school, uh, the army that wins on the physical battlefield. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you see examples where it's also sparking real world outcomes, both for better and for worse. So we're seeing it um, spark reform movements that are literally changing the world, uh, again, of business, of politics. Think about the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter. But it's also uh, sparking things that have, you know, scary, dangerous, bad outcomes. Think about, um, as you mentioned, you know, if you look at 
there's an episode looking at, at Chicago. Yeah, the fights that break out are, yeah, it, begin it, online. Yeah. Everything from it looks at a specific incident where there's a gangland shooting that starts over uh, a YouTube clip to the data shows that over 80% of the fistfights in Chicago schools start with something online. Oh, by the way, we saw all the similar patterns in basically how internet beefs have real effects play out in everything from violence in um, places like military level violence in, in places like Sudan and Nigeria to you have a president of the United States who specialized, who rose to power through the beef, um, the online beef that, it, that drew attention, but also has created, uh, shall we say, complications, right, uh, right. very kind complications for U.S. diplomacy and undermine longstanding alliance relationships. When I say longstanding, I mean like 70 years. So, you know, the book basically tries to make sense of all of this by bringing together insights from all of these different fields. But also, um, when I say fields, we also did interviews with just a wild variety of people to learn their lessons, you know, again, everything from the literal godfather of the internet himself to tech company executives to people who recruit for extremist groups to celebrities to intelligence operatives you name it and you know some are people who are not that well known other ones have become infamous an example would be lieutenant general michael flynn who um you know has since uh popped up in the Mueller investigation and the night and the like so it was a pretty uh amazing experience so you've hinted that this new battlefield requires kind of different skill sets but also it's in the book, I, I get the sense that the very nature of battle has changed because you and your co-author talk about this kind of uh, skirmishes here and there, right? So online that then uh, are really part of a much larger campaign and, and, and that every one of us online are part of kind of contested territory that people are battling over. Yeah, so it, it's you see it um, on one hand, there are aspects of it that reflect history that the that has gone on when you've had other great technology shifts so to kind of put it you know differently a clausewitz the you know the the classic thinker of war there are certain aspects of this that he would he would just simply he would recognize it he would get it he the internet would flummox him but the idea of war through other means and memes um he would get and you uh, see similarly patterns that are quite parallel with uh, what happened when, for example, the telegraph came into being. The telegraph had an effect on everything from the news business to politics to personal connections and relationships. And the same thing has happened with social media. So there's these lessons from history. And I think what's notable is, and, and maybe this is you know me a little bit critiquing a lot of the techno-optimism that was out there in Silicon Valley. Again, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, note me making kind of a blanket statement, but it, it was out there of you know thinking that this was all going to be different. You're thinking that, you know, if you go back and think about the, this, you know, this will only strengthen democracy or, you know, Facebook had a, a line um, at the time that they thought was celebratory. Now it sounds almost creepy that, quote, the more we connect, the better it gets. No, the more we connect, the more we connect. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, both good and bad people connect and it has both good and bad effects. So, you know, there are certain aspects of it that we're seeing repetition. And so we try and draw upon that. 
but there are other aspects of it that make it very different than any prior technology shift because social media allows the simultaneity of mass broadcast but one-on-one -on -one connection you can speak to the world simultaneously connecting at the most intimate level with someone else and what that means is that we are all now players in a way that we were not before we are all now combatants in these wars that are battles for our own clicks our own attention you know and, and you can see this an example would be we look at uh, an episode in a, uh, there was a war between um, Israel and Hamas. Oh, yeah, that's in your book. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over 10 million tweets going back and forth. And, you know, it was not Israeli and Palestinians. It was people like you and I uh, weighing in from thousands of miles away. But what was notable is the ebb and flow online was affecting the battlefield decision making. There was a 50% swing in airstrikes based on who was winning the online war and uh, did you have a line in your book something to the effect that you know you can actually uh, you might win the actual physical battle but actually lose because you lost the online war uh, and and that is a we we have real examples of that whether it's ba uh, the battle of mosul uh to you know, think about what's played out in some of the elections uh recently where um we have this interview with a leading campaign strategist uh and he sort of he, he looked at 2016 and he was talking about all the uh advantages that trump's opponents first had in the gop nomination and then against hillary clinton and he went through you know all the ways that you would measure uh who was likely to win you know everything from campaign cash to number of offices to newspaper endorsements to advertising spending and he's like you go through all of them and there was no way that he ought to have won and yet he did because of this online side of things um and of course the lessons of that have now become baked into you know not just the upcoming 2020 election at the presidential level but you know all the way down to the local level but there's an important thing it's not you know it there's also this sense of um when it hit two things here in terms of that that battle space issue that participatory aspect of it the first is on the most personal level if you look at for example the spread of the toxic side of the internet whether it's conspiracy theory disinformation campaigns fake news in quotation marks you mean flat earth and the anti-vaccination people well there's that i, I put that in the, the conspiracy theory category Disinformation would be, uh, you know, Russian propaganda deliberately injected into the system. Hate extremism would be, you know, think about some of the alt-right stuff. And there's obviously a, a crossover between all of this. But the, what I was getting to is, if you look at the data, the single greatest determinant for whether you believe it and in turn whether you share it with others is not the topic, uh, et cetera. It simply does someone else and your personal trusted network share it first. So essentially, you are the contagion agent. You are the one who is responsible for not just defending yourself, but to even more defending your friends and family. And yet you take that idea and you cross it with another interesting data point. Over 60% of us share articles online without ever reading them. Um, yeah, this and, reminds me of uh, the whole big data thing, which is volume, velocity, and variety. And uh, what you're talking about, particularly, it seems like uh, on the velocity and 
and volume side, people are just overwhelmed with in their feeds, right? So there's there's yes. no, there's no way they actually read any of these articles, right? Well, and 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 so it becomes you know this this kind of battle for attention. But your note about that hits another key aspect, which is the systems were designed this way. The platforms were designed to reward virality, not veracity. And so we are in a world where virality trumps veracity. And that means also that the tech companies that own and run these platforms have a different kind of responsibility that they're coming to grips with. Uh, As I mentioned again, they may have started out creating these spaces for fun, and then now they're running them as these massive marketplaces. But it also means that they've become something other than maybe how they visualize themselves. The first is they've become media companies. They may not want to see themselves as that, but they are. For example, you know, Zuckerberg has said, you know, I don't want to be a newspaper editor. I don't want to be an arbiter of truth. Well, sorry, you're not just a newspaper editor. You're the most powerful editor in all of history. You control the feed. You, and, and you do control the truth. And you and this is not something new. You have intervened. You are deciding when to intervene or not. You know, a good example would be recently in the 2018 election, the companies decided, so while they may say we don't want to be an arbiter of truth, they have determined that they will intervene if false information is being spread about the location of a voting site, but they will not intervene if false information is being spread about uh, what informs a voter or not, a political position or not. So, and again, that's a, that's a choice that they made, but that choice has impacts. They are intervening, but that also, uh, it's not just that they're, they're media companies, it's that they are running what are battlegrounds. They are battlegrounds where these groups are contending back and forth, and they're battlegrounds where it affects, again, you know, everything from the profitability of a company to literally individual lives and a mass number of lives, individual lives, you know, think about their choices on when to intervene related to uh, suicide being broadcast online or internet bullying uh, or, or uh, whatnot to uh, mass numbers of lives. Think about the story of the role of social media related to genocide in Myanmar, where at one point the social media platform celebrated the idea that in Myanmar, it was actually um, them for all uh, intents and purposes, the internet for people in Myanmar was going through social media companies. They, they didn't not, they, they dominated the internet space, but they goes from that to, whoa, it's being used to foment and coordinate a genocide. And so they go from celebrating it to kind of belatedly being compelled by public outcry to do something about it. And then the companies, for example, kick off the generals in Myanmar from the most popular communication channel in their own nation. They do it, I think, for good reason. But again, it shows this incredible power that these tech companies have right now, where they literally took away the primary communication tool from the leaders of another country. Incredible power, incredible responsibility. And you can see these companies that are, you know, in many ways, just in adolescence, coming to grips with this. I mean, Facebook just celebrated its 15-year anniversary. I mean, that's, that's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I've been I've actually uh, been doing a deep dive into the technology algorithms that people are looking at in order to counter some of these, and it's these are just hard problems, 
right now. And, and, and it's what's funny is, again, they're hard problems, but we often make them harder by assuming that there's only an engineering solution right. to them and assuming that there is a solution to problems that um, can't be solved often, but simply be managed. There's a great quote in the book from an engineer at one of the companies. And, you know, he says, you know, we could solve all of this with AI as long as we can figure out the First Amendment questions. Right. <laughs> like, um, uh, yeah, you just don't solve the First Amendment questions with it. You know, they're always going to be there. Um, and, you know, and then you get to the issue of AI. OK, you're going to apply it in one way. But of course, it then creates all sorts of new riddles, wrinkles, uh, et cetera. So that's, you know, that's part of the other realization that we as individual users and the leaders in these companies all need to go through is that this will be with us. As long as there is politics, as long as there is business, as long as there is the internet, these problems will be with us. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be kind of these grand uh, elections. I don't know if you saw, but there was an article in this week's New Yorker, which was kind of an eye opener for me, which is uh, they talk about this uh, company that got involved in a, believe it or not, hospital board election in Tulare, California, a very small place. Yes. Uh, and, and then yeah. they did kind of, they applied some of these same strategies, but I think they they kind of went overboard and then so obviously people noticed right away what what is this? This is a, a bit too much for our small town, right? Well so what you're hitting on is that if you think about a historic parallel, some of these tactics and, and technologies that have been used over the last couple of years whether it's in shaping the outcome of elections to wars to you know just marketing for a product they're a little bit like the biplane in world war 1 you know so they're new they're rickety they've they've proved that they work but you ain't seen nothing yet and you ain't seen nothing yet whether it's in the advancement of the technology you know think about the role of bots one third of the online conversation around brexit was artificial automated accounts have this magnified impact. And yet, you know, the bots in 2016 are, they're pretty simple. And yet right. they could still shape online trends. You know, now we've got the application of AI into this space, or you think about the rise of deep fakes. And then you have the other thing that you put your finger on, which is that these, each of these, you know, success stories leads to marketization and proliferation. So you are seeing the tactics that, you know, were, for example, whether they were used in Brexit or by Russia to target the U.S. 2016 national election, you know, they're moving down levels to state, local. There is a rising industry of kind of the, you know, they're basically the mercenary version of this space. And in some ways, these are the above board companies, right? Because uh, just like in cybersecurity, there's this underground economy based mostly in Eastern Europe that people don't really know about. And, and you have these questions of um, what is legal or not that's still being worked out. And then you have not just that, but what is legal in one country may not be in another. And that episode that you were talking about is a, is a great example of it, where it was a company that has been active we can definitively prove that it was active in everything from being hired to target rival corporations and, you know, harm them to uh, the case you were talking about. It was brought into it was a local election, but it was really about trying to protect a contract, a multimillion dollar contract right. that related to the a hospital there. And so they were trying to shape the outcome of the election to protect the contract. But then that same company has, say this, allegedly 
it was reported to have been involved in efforts to shape the outcome of the 2016 election at the national level in the U.S. And so you can, again, you can see these back and forth. There's another fun example of this proliferation I, I love to use to illustrate it is when the movie A Star is Born came out, Lady Gaga fans consciously mimicked what they had seen as the successful Russian disinformation warfare tactics against the United States to use it against who they saw as their foes, which were the rival movies to Lady Gaga's new movie premiere. So they did the exact same thing wow. in terms of creating what we call sock puppet accounts, false accounts, driving false reports viral. They were just doing it to target the rival movies because they wanted their heroes movie to do well that weekend. But it's funny because, you know, you, you were seeing this, well, if it worked in this space, I'll bring it over. In turn, a lot of the things that the, the Russians were doing were, you know, basically just pulling from digital marketing techniques, uh, micro-targeting, as well as internet troll culture. And so you have this, you know, mixing and matching and crossing. But I, you know, just go back to where we were earlier in the conversation. I think it's a little bit parallel to the story of cybersecurity playing out over the last 15 years, where we weren't taking it seriously enough. When I say we, we had to develop responses over the last 15 years at everything from the national governmental and military level. You know, we created new organizations like Cyber Command, but no one said, oh, well, that means businesses don't have to think about it. That means individuals don't have to think about it. It's the same thing on the like war side of things. We're going to have to change everything from national approaches. I think there's a lot of lessons in the U.S. to be learned from what nations like Estonia have done. But it also is something that's going to involve decisions in terms of corporations and our own individual behavior. So P.W. Singer is giving a, a keynote at Strata this coming March, which I'm definitely looking forward to. So take us out on a positive note. Give us a few tips of what we should be doing with our own personal media consumption or defenses. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is, you know, something an author should never do, but I'm going to share the closing line of the book. You are now what you share and what you share reveals who you truly are. So if you, your internet presence, your behavior online can define who you are and that you is, a, it applies to nations, it applies to businesses, it applies to us as individuals. This is all the more true in a world where, again, virality trumps veracity. So your behavior online defines who you are, but in turn, how you behave online reveals who you truly are. If you share toxicity, if you share conspiracy theory, you share disinformation, you share hate and extremism, you are a toxic actor online. You may not think you are, um, but you are. It's a little bit equivalent to uh, the spread of disease. You know, you can say, oh, I'm a good person, but if you cough at me without covering your mouth, you know, you're a danger to public health. In turn, if you are someone who stands up for what is right online, pushes back against the forces of toxicity, then that is who you truly are. And so I think I circle back to the, you know, this conversation. We've talked about the connections between national policy business leadership, but also our own individual behavior. And I think, you know, just like in cybersecurity, just like in public health, there's also a line that connects these together when we think about the social media side of all of this. 
Well, uh, this has been a great conversation, and we look forward to your keynote next month at Stratum. Thanks very much. Take care. So a reminder, P.W. Singer will be giving a keynote at Strata Data in late March in San Francisco. You can follow P.W. Singer on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and Spotify and never miss an episode.